Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. It was a weird one to write because every time I tried to write one. It was a viral sensation, right? Like it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories. Or how, we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Andrea Pitzer. Pitzer is the author of Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. The book was published by Scribner and went on sale today, January 12th. Shipwrecked is a gripping piece of narrative journalism focused on European Arctic explorers in the 16th century. At the center is William Barents, one of the greatest navigators of the time, whose obsessive quest to sail through the most remote regions of the Arctic ended in both tragedy and glory. It is the story of a Dutch navigator named William Barents and his three voyages to the Arctic at the end of the 16th century. And each one kind of gets a little more complicated as you go. And the last one, uh, they end up stuck for the winter in the high Arctic. And so at a sort of basic level, it's, I think, a pretty amazing survival story. Pitzer did an amazing amount of research in order to tell this centuries-old tale. For Icebound, Pitzer made three trips to the Arctic herself. She spent a great deal of time in archives and libraries. She even walked through a replica of the yachts that sailed in the 16th century. And I went inside the ship. It was floating in the water. It didn't have its masts yet, but it was floating in the water. So I could actually go stand in that space. Icebound is Pitzer's third book. Her first was The Secret History of Vladimir Nabobkov. After that, she wrote One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. In 2009, Pitzer founded Neiman Storyboard, the narrative nonfiction website for the Neiman Foundation for Journalism. She stayed on as the editor until 2012. The site is still going strong. Pitzer has written for the Washington Post, the New York Review of Books, Outside Magazine, GQ, Longreads, and others. As usual, I've linked to all of the stories that we talk about on the show and more. You can find all of that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Andrea, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Uh, I'm excited to be talking with you uh, about your book, your new book, um, Icebound, 
Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World, which is actually uh, coming out today on, on January 12th. Um, to start things off, can you can you tell me a little bit about the book? What's what's it about? It is the story of a Dutch navigator named William Barents and his three voyages to the Arctic at the end of the 16th century. And each one kind of gets a little more complicated as you go. And the last one, uh, they end up stuck for the winter in the high Arctic. And so at a sort of basic level, it's, I think, a pretty amazing survival story. This, um, you know, you, you, the other two books that you've written are, are kind of historical, historically based as well, but this one is really historically based because it, it's going back more than four centuries. Um, how did you learn about it? And then what made you think that this was something that you'd wanted to write a book about? Well, there's kind of three answers to that. I'll try to do each of them pretty briefly. The way I first heard about this story was when I was working on my first book, which was called The Secret History of Vladimir Nabokov. And in that book, um, there's a mystery kingdom in one of Nabokov's novels that's obviously invented. It's called Zembla. And a big part of my book was figuring out sort of what was Zembla. And the most obvious first answer of it is that there were these islands north of Russia, which in English are called Nova Zembla, in Russian, Novaya Zemlya. So I went into the history of these islands. And that's where 400 and some years ago, uh, these guys were stranded. And so just in sort of surveying the entire history of these pretty remote islands, I came across this story. It's one paragraph in my first book, but I always thought I might come back around to it. So that's kind of the initial answer. Uh, the other two answers, which are also kind of relevant, is my second uh, book was a history of concentration camps from when the term first emerged for detention of civilians, which was in the 1890s all the way up to the present. And there were concentration camps on six continents during the 20th century. And uh, that was a pretty harrowing book to write, I have to say. Uh, and so my second answer for why this book is, there were no concentration camps on the Vice <laughs> I really wanted to do something that would let my brain move into a different space and still kind of try to reconcile myself to that second book and like let it sit for a little. And then the third reason is, um, I'm really, really interested in, when I'm doing narrative nonfiction, how we tell stories and what stories we decide to tell. And I like to pick things that are difficult to do. And it seemed to me that to reconstruct a narrative account from more than 400 years ago without over-interpreting, without assigning feelings and emotions that we don't know these guys had, without sort of having a free hand, really trying to stick to the history, um, I wanted the challenge of trying to tell that story because I thought there was still enough there to make it powerful and I wanted to give it a shot. Yeah. The, the, the book, uh, I, I, if there's a main character in the book, I think it's William Barents, right? Uh, the, the explorer, um, uh, who, uh, goes on, uh, not one, not two, but three missions, uh, up into the, the, the polar area. How, you know, how did you gather information about him that would help you then build this narrative of uh, this life of exploration that he lived? Well, it's one of the other interesting challenges to the book is we actually don't know a lot about his early life. And uh, we know that he was a sailor. We know that he became a respected navigator. He did the first sort of comprehensive mapping of the Mediterranean Sea. And then he, and he was married and he had several children. And then he was um, 
part of these three Arctic missions. And that's really what he became legendary for. And so in terms of diving into the characters of the book, there wasn't a ton of material. And I almost had to make their interactions with the place to have the place be an additional character and then sort of feeding off of that. So characterization um, was really unusual with this book because I characterize them often as a group, which you just don't see in narrative nonfiction, right? You're peeling off these like individuals and certainly Barents is the heart of this. He's the guy that was on all three of these voyages. And we see certain characteristics, certain stubbornness, a certain belief that he's right about the uh, navigation chart and where people should be going and, and what's the best route to take. And, you know, so we do get pieces of his personality there, but a lot of times what's happening in the book is happening to a whole group of people at once, which I also liked as a challenge, but it was really important to me to go to the Arctic multiple times in order to be able to characterize that place and understand what it would be like to be stuck there for the winter, really for almost a year. Yeah, I would like to ask you about those trips to the Arctic, but before we get there, I know um, uh, a lot of this is archival work, right? Um, I mean, probably the vast majority of it. Uh, and on your website, it says that you feel most at home in libraries. Um, so what is it about libraries and archives that, that give you that feeling that, that that's a place you, you like to be? Uh, for me, it's incredible to just to go in and see documents, handle items, like if you're going to a museum um, or get close to the items if they're not handleable, uh, and just see what's available. And sometimes even when you have that list or you kind of know it, for instance, at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, which I went to twice for this uh, book, there was a collection of artifacts from their cabin that had been rescued centuries later and are now in the holdings of the museum. And on my first trip there, I saw a bunch of them in the glass cabinets. I read about them. They're listed online with the photos. But last year, actually now 2019, I wanted to go back. And so what I did then was to make an appointment with the curator who was in charge of those. And it turned out there were a whole bunch of other relics in the depot that they had in storage. And he took me there and got them out. And like we had them on a table in front of us and I could gently, you know, and sometimes with gloves, sometimes without, depending on what we were handling, it sometimes was better one way or the other, actually, like, touch and see these things that are sometimes even described in the journal. And that was just an amazing, amazing way to connect. And I see that as archival material, too. Like, it's instead of a piece of paper, it's an object. But I felt the same way sometimes about the pieces of paper, the Library of Congress, I live just outside DC. So it's very convenient for me to go there. They actually had a really early folio of, of the man who went on two of the voyages with Barrett's and also wrote about it. Uh, a record of his that came out within a year or two of when they actually made the voyages. And so this is like amazing. You go to the Library of Congress, you get your researcher card and you don't have to be anybody particularly special. You know, you have to be kind of legit, but you don't have to be famous or have a PhD because I don't. Um, and you get this researcher card and you can go in and I was able to handle, again, under supervision, there's a guy across the room keeping an eye to make sure I'm not doing anything crazy, but I was able to handle this book from 1600 that is this account of the voyages. And looking at that and seeing the original artwork from that, and uh, you know, it really connects you to that time in a way, uh, time and place both are just so critical in this book. And I think that it gives you just little details that otherwise you wouldn't have. Yeah. 
I'm curious, like when you are looking at that material, um, how do you take notes on it? Because I know some archives I've been into, you know, said no cameras. Um, and some of those are changing cause it's been a while since I've been in an archive, but, but how, how are you taking notes on that, that type of stuff? So you can really like take that feeling home after having seen it. Oh my gosh. So that's, there's like, I could write <laughs> a long feature on crazy archive adventures. Um, this one, I was talking to you about this book from 1600. And by the way, that was in old Dutch and I couldn't read old Dutch, but I could use, uh, a phone camera with no flash. And so I just literally took hundreds of pictures of like everything, close-ups of any illustrations, the whole page, ways to cue myself where I was so I didn't lose track of which page something went with. Um, so there was a uh, pencil, only pencil, and because they don't want pen anywhere near these books, uh, pencil and paper. Um, I could write some things down, but mostly it was photo documentation. And I have found that in recent years, most archives, if you aren't causing them trouble, if you don't seem like trouble for them, they are pretty flexible about using non-flash cameras, uh, which is just a godsend. I can't tell you how many archives I've come home with, like 2,000 photos on my thing and I have to go and sort them, but I'm so lucky to have that. But in other cases where you can't do that, I had an amazing exchange in Berlin where I had just assumed I could go in because I was going like 20 places and spend this one day in this German archive and I would get what I needed. And this was for my prior book. So... I can speak French pretty fluently and some Spanish and some Italian. And I figured this woman who's an intellectual, right, running this archive would surely we could pigeon our way through something. But no. And I mean, it's on me, of course, I didn't speak German. I shouldn't really have expected her to accommodate that. But we pigeoned our way through and I sprinted back to my hotel and I had somebody help me fill out this paperwork because I wasn't allowed to take pictures and I couldn't even leave with the material. But I just left them this list of what I wanted because I only literally had four hours I could be at this archive before I had to jump on a train. And the woman mailed me this stuff. And I have found again and again that librarians, curators, and archivists are just like the most helpful people in the world. Even if they think you're a little nuts, they are really supportive of anybody who wants to learn about the materials that they haven't you know, in store. And it's just always an adventure. Yeah. And that's what I found too. Uh, the, the times I've spent in archives is they, they want to help you because they are taking care of this stuff, but they also want people to know that, that there's history and, and there's, there's stuff to look at. Um, and it's amazing because I mean, you should always look, and I don't just mean archives and libraries, although that's really important. Um, and, and along those lines, like library of Congress, when I was writing my Nabokov book, Nabokov's father, um, had run a newspaper in Berlin. They had fled the, the uh, Soviets as the Soviets came to power, literally machine guns, like chasing them out of the harbor. It was a really dramatic story and wound up in Berlin. And his father uh, was one of the key people in a Russian newspaper in Berlin. Library of Congress has the newspaper. I mean, they have it there. And I took photos of every page for a year. And I suspected at one point that there should have been an article actually about Nova Zembla in there. And I worked with an assistant and we found the article that I thought would exist somewhere in that year's newspaper. And when you do that, when you have a suspicion that there's a record that you want to find and then you find it, I mean, that's a pretty amazing feeling. But YouTube also, you know, the historical films that are available, like you don't necessarily have to live near the Library of Congress or be able to get there. Your own library or even things like YouTube, there was a trial of some revolutionaries in Russia in 1922. And I went and looked, and there's footage from the trial on YouTube. 
which was a whole scene I could write in my first book. So, I mean, I just love using these resources that are just everywhere if you look for them. Yeah, yeah. At one point uh, in in Icebound, you describe uh, very detailed the layout of a ship, uh, a yacht. Um, how did you do that? Well, I was super lucky. This is sort of like a corollary to the archive thing. Um, and that on my second Arctic expedition, I know we'll get to those later, uh, two people who were crew on it were Dutch and they introduced me to some guys they knew who were actually building a replica of William Barrett's ship and and so I got in touch with them and I went and I went inside the ship it was floating in the water it didn't have its masts yet but it was floating in the water so I could actually go stand in that space and the, the thing that's interesting is we don't have the real plans for the original one that was back when it was kind of an artisanal craft, and also it was a long time ago. They might have been lost time, even if those had existed. But because uh, these, this one guy in particular, Daryl uh, uh, Devere, had done tons of um, shipwreck excavation, he knew what the ships looked like um, from that era, and then matching it with the illustrations that were done in the first version of the book that were done really obviously with someone who was on the boat, probably Garrett DeVere, the guy who kept the journal. Uh, he was able to determine like how that fit as the standard boat and they were rebuilding it. And we know that it matches um, sort of almost inch for inch these detailed illustrations that were there. So that again was just a fantastic thing to be able to, to actually be in the ship essentially. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome, that's amazing. Um, I know. Uh, so, okay. So you, so you spent time in archives, uh, and, 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 you know, doing that research, um, where did the trips into the Arctic, uh, come into play? Um, and, uh, you said, I think you said you went three times. I went three times. So just like William Barron, hopefully I'll get to go more, but I went three for this book and, um, it's really important to me to go to these places if I can, because honestly, the you know Dutch historians who have spent 40 years looking at William Barrett, they're going to know that material and know Dutch history in a way I can't get deeper than that myself. And so I'm happy to synthesize with my nonfiction stuff. I'm happy to sort of play reporter and bring together a bunch of different ideas and hopefully say something new about them. But the thing I think I can really add that, that maybe those historians don't have a chance to as much or aren't as focused on is to tie that together with being in that physical place and recreating that sense of the space. And just not that many people who've handled the relics and looked in the archives have also gone to where William Barrett's cabin was in the high Arctic. And so I, I feel like, you know, was that 90s phrase, you know, value added? Like, what is the value added? What is the thing that I can do that not nobody else can do, but maybe not very many people can do, or it's really hard to do? Like, that's the thing I want to, I want to have a story that not everybody can tell. And I want to give people something that's really interesting. So three times I went to the Arctic. Um, the fabulous Blair Braverman, who is a musher, who did the Iditarod as a rookie and finished in 2019, which is kind of amazing. Um, on Twitter, I had never met her in person, invited me to a mushing boot camp uh, just to come for the weekend up to where she has the dog. And there were six of us, all women, all writers. And she taught us basically how to do basic dog sledding. And I knew I wanted to do this book, but I hadn't started it yet. I hadn't pitched it. I hadn't sold it. It was just, I want to do the Barrett's book. 
And she said, you should go spend time in the Arctic. Well, yes, I want to spend time in the Arctic. <laughs> but what's how do you do that? Like if you don't have any background for it. And I, I used to teach karate for a living. I still run and lift weights. So I was game to try whatever, but I had no skills and certainly no deep knowledge of the Arctic beyond reading about it. And so she made a couple of suggestions. I actually tried to get on as a dog handler um, in a couple of the kennels up there, which is a pretty crappy job, literally, but would have been a nice entree. And it ended up not working. But one of the two places was fantastic. And I ended up booking uh, 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 like an expedition with them where during polar night, because I wanted to feel what was it like for my guys during polar night, we would go to the interior of a place my guys had discovered, Smallbard, during polar night. And they didn't have the dogs, but we would be far enough away from any lights and stuff on the coast that I would get that feeling. Yeah. So that was the first expedition. And it was really like sort of Blair's brainchild to like get me to that part of the Arctic where there were dogs. because She had already taught me dog stuff. And then um, a couple other people had already told me about a, a really nice residency called the Arctic Circle Residency. And then I applied for that. By this point, I had the, the book contract. Um, and so with that, we sail on a tall ship up around Svalbard. So I got to learn how to haul the sails and belay them. And uh, it's not exactly the same kind of ship that Barron's had. It was actually a bigger ship and the sails were arranged differently. But I spent as much time as I could at the top of the mast, um, like stay up there for an hour or two, because this is where, I mean, you're clipped in. So I'm, I mean, I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could do that. <laughs> oh, but I loved it. It was wonderful. But also it was a sense, it was a sense because the top sails were actually quite similar. So what I was looking at in terms of the sails, but also the shores to imagine the first guy that we have a recorded history of seeing that same shoreline, you know, so that was really a wonderful thing. And that was a little over two weeks. And then, uh, and while I was there in Svalbard, They'd also had built, they're very proud of Barents, um, even though it's Norway, it's not the Netherlands where he's from, but like the Barents was there. They have a Barents bar uh, in this little tiny town in the Arctic. And they also recreated his hut so I could go and take pictures. Again, it's kind of like the physical version of the archives, right? So they had made a version of this cabin that was actually built hundreds of miles away to the third place I went. Uh, but, um, but they had built it there. And so just getting how many paces is it across? How tall is it? What does it feel like to be inside it? So then I get all this other sensory detail. And then, and what I'd always kind of wanted to do was actually go to the ruins of the cabin. But that's just a lot tougher because it's the Russian Arctic. It's up not too far from some military installations, only it's like 200 miles away from them. But Russia's pretty serious about all that stuff. And I just lucked out um, a friend of mine recommended me to somebody at this uh, exploration company, and they ended up being able, I paid with my book advance for a, a translator, actually the curator of the Vladimir Nabokov Museum from my first book, who makes an appearance in there, came with me as my translator, and um, they filled it in with two marine biologists uh, and a tourist, and we had an expedition to go to the ruins of Barrett's cabin, and it was pretty spectacular. Uh, the engine broke on the way home, so we sailed back exactly as Barents would have had to in his day in a boat that was almost the same exact length as the ship that Barents had. Now, volume-wise and mast-wise, that was all quite different. But still, in terms of just the deck square footage, you know, it's quite similar. And so doing it on sails on the way back, seeing at exactly the point in the journal when they run into and see walruses for the first time, hundreds of walruses, and they've never seen them before. 
is exactly where we ran into hundreds of walruses. And so just uh, we saw a mirage, not the same time or place that they did, but we saw an Arctic mirage just as they did. Um, I mean, it was it was uh, uh, just phenomenal to, to go there and stand on that little spit of land where their cabin was. And there's still some logs from it today. Not much is left. Most of it's been taken to museums. Yeah. And stand there and see that was really, um, I mean, it just gave me so much insight. So when I came home, I shut myself up in a little tiny room we have upstairs and just imagined that it was like blizzarding outside. And I was like furiously trying to capture that feeling of being out on that desolate strip of land. I was going to ask, I mean, it, it, the, and the writing within the book really feels like, um, at least it felt like when I was reading that I was there, um, which I know is, is hard to do with, with historical um, uh, type projects. Um, you know, so you, you got back, you sat right down, <laughs> locked yourself in your, in your home office and started writing. But overall, like you've got all this information from archives and you've got the three trips that you took up to the Arctic. Like, how do you organize all of this type of stuff so you can then actually write a book? Well, the, I had written some of it before I left. Um, and that was helpful because I already knew where I had gaps and holes and what needed to be filled in. And, um, but I find, and I hear this again and again from reporters and people who write books, um, just a timeline to start with. Just make yourself a timeline. And then how, if you're telling it, if you're not telling it chronologically, that timeline is still going to help you keep it straight. If you're breaking up or doing some really unusual structure, you'll at least have a second parallel thing that you can be looking at so you know where you're drawing pieces from. This was told as pretty much straight chronological structure, so it was a little simpler. And so then it's literally, okay, where are the chapter breaks going to be? Um, you know, to me, it's so daunting to write a whole book, you know, and it's just like, you just have to do it, but how do you even start? So for me, it's what's my timeline? What's going in the first chapter? What's going in the second chapter? Literally just like which of these like chronological events. And then from there to say, what are the sub themes that I'm working on that I want to come back and touch again and again and again? What's that? What part of that is going to be in chapter one? What part of that is going to be in chapter two? So it's almost like making like recipes for each chapter, which elements need to be present. And then I break it down into like, what is this section about? And I actually tend to write in sections. And some of my books, they're actually numbered separately. In other ones, they just kind of have a little break, you know. And it, that to me is how it's possible to write a book. It, has, it works two ways. One is you can have like a 800 to maybe 1800 word section. It's like, that's what I'm writing today. I'm going to make this really good. To, I'm going to make a nice draft of this today. It doesn't have to be perfect, but, and like, that's doable. That's a newspaper article, right? That's an opinion. That's an essay. That's, you know, I can do that. And the other thing it allows me to do is I always want to be toggling. It was a little bit less in this book than my first two books, which were about so like years and years and years of history, a whole lifetime, a whole century. Um, but in those two books, those sections allowed me to toggle between really intimate sort of scenes where you're very up close and bigger picture things like what's happening, what's the exposition, what's in the background. And if you can sort of move back and forth between those, your reader will often come with you through a lot of information if you can keep that narrative going. What's nice about this book, it was a little simpler. The narrative was mostly I'm staying with the guide. There are times when I pan back and I kind of look at like what does it mean, whether in the beginning where I'm sort of laying the ground this is the first years of the Dutch Republic and they're at war with Spain and you're kind of getting the setting. And then toward the end, when it's like, what became of this story? Like, what did this story end up meaning, you know, to the world? Uh, then I'm panning back. 
but for the most part, it's kind of from chapter two to chapter nine, you're in, you're with these guys on the boat, you know, on the ship, in the cabin, and um, and and that's pretty straightforward writing. You just, in my head, there's almost a visual. I feel like I fall backward into it. If I can really concentrate, I'm literally kind of like falling into the story. And the funny thing was, when I would come out of the little upstairs guest room, I was always surprised that it wasn't snowing outside. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this was not snow. When I was mostly working on this, it was not like potential snow time at all. But I always, and I thought, that's a good sign. Like, that, that it's weird that it's not snowing is a good sign. Definitely. I, I always think when it's not snowing, it's a good time. Although well, <laughs> I live in Connecticut, which is probably not the right different, place yeah, to live different. for that. So, um, well, anyways, uh, I've been talking uh, with Andrea Pitzer. Her book, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World, went on sale today, January 12th. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We will be back in one minute. I am Matt Tullis. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Andrea Pitzer. Her book, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World, went on sale today, January 12th. Andrea, I'd love to talk with you about Neiman's Storyboard, uh, which you launched in 2009. Um, I, I've done some work for Neiman's Storyboard since 2015, and I love doing that type of writing and reporting. Can you tell me how the whole, how, how the whole thing came about? Well... Actually, my husband was a Neiman fellow, and we had two children. We still have them, but they were very little then. My daughter was uh, not even a year old. My son was two, and uh, I had been home with him a lot. My daughter was much more sort of flexible and adaptable and excited to be around other people. We knew she would do well in childcare, and so we had sort of jointly figured, tried to figure out what journalism fellowship could he apply for that would have spousal benefits that might help me transition back to the workforce. We had no idea that once we got to the Neiman Foundation, um, that not only as we expected was there childcare to help take care of the kids and facilitate that so I could sort of start thinking about other things, but that there was uh, the narrative program that was there, um, Narrative Digest at that time, and the big narrative conference that the foundation hosted. And the conference, um, <clears throat> was pretty short-lived. It went on that year, which was, I think, 2008, right around there. And um, But then with the economic crash, there was a lot of budget cutting that happened, and that conference sort of ceased to exist in that form. And I had been doing some work with the Narrative Digest and really enjoyed it. And I felt like there, so I was working part-time for the foundation at that point, and I felt like there was this need to think in a bigger way about story 
and there was always this sort of weekly focus on a narrative uh, that was really well done in a newspaper. Um, very occasionally a photo essay would be included. Uh, and I was thinking, why limit it there? Why not documentary film and books and any kind of like graphic novels, any kind of true story that tried to really be accountable, not sort of loosely accountable to the truth, but really trying to adhere to it. And, you know, expanding it beyond what people think of as newspaper journalism, which is not to belittle it at all. I think that's the heart of narrative journalism in America has been these newspaper reporters. But with, unfortunately, the demise a lot of, the, of a lot of newspapers, a lot of that energy has kind of gone to other places. And I thought it would be great to look at something that was beyond sort of print um, and, and say, what about this whole idea of just true stories, like anything that's a true story? Uh, and and they were very receptive to it. So we launched it in 2009 and I stayed until 2012 when I was finishing my first book and managing the small children and the, the Neiman storyboard uh, and trying to finish the book was just too much. And they, I love what they've gone on to do since. Jackie Bonashinsky is there now, who's just a star. And interestingly is like, I, I think I introduced her or moderated her panel at the last Neiman narrative conference. So it's this sort of wonderful loop that this stellar person from a few years ahead of me, who's done this wonderful work, ended up taking over this project and doing such a great job with it today. Yeah, yeah, she's doing she's doing awesome. I remember when I was hired by the Columbus Dispatch in 2008, I told them that I would only come and work if they would send me to Neiman Storyboard in 2009, or not Neiman Storyboard, the Neiman Conference in 2009. And they said, okay. And then the Neiman conference never happened again. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, that was, so 2008 was the last year. That's when I met Jackie in 2009 is when you didn't get to go. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the economy crashed. So it, did. it was a little bit of a tough it time. Did. But I think there was also this desire to sort of have more of a forum if there wasn't going to be that conference to try to make it possible. So that was when we, for the first time, had a lot more people writing pieces for it, like contributors, as opposed to just an editor and somebody else kind of doing, you know, interviews really trying to bring a lot of voices in, which it's, it's done a ton. There's been a lot of really great writers. In yeah, there. definitely. Uh, so um, in the time since you've uh, stopped, uh, since you, you left as the editor of, of Neiman Storyboard, so basically the last eight years, um, how, uh, in your eyes, has um, narrative journalism and the industry that supported it changed? I think it's really tough. I think those windows for, you know, the was it column four in the Wall Street Journal features, you know, that there used to be every paper had at least a weekly slot, if not a daily slot to, to have a long piece. Um, it's gone. And I don't want to fetishize it. There definitely uh, there were things when I was there dealing with some of the other Neiman staff that in my head I just would call gimme stories, that it's like a sick child in a hospital or and, and it's not putting it down at all. But it's saying there, there were sort of formulaic stories that could come out of that that were really important. And it's that balance of something that links you to the community and lets you know about your community. But also you want to see people taking chances with stories. And so sometimes those features were important to the community, but not necessarily tackling new ways of thinking about story or even really incisive ones. But I feel like when the papers had all those slots, that was also kind of a training ground. So if it was, um, you know, local guy makes good or sick kid in hospital, that's a place that like a pretty good reporter can start it and tell it as a story. And then as they go on, uh, they can do something that's a little tougher or bring more nuance into that story or tell a harder story to tell in which somebody maybe isn't just a good guy, but is kind of a good guy and a bad guy, too. And, 
And so I feel like they were also really the training ground for some of our greatest storytellers. And we sort of chopped out those first two or three levels of it. And now you really have to scramble to be able to do that on your own. You don't have the benefit of these experienced editors a lot of times. And you, so I think it's, it's a lot more wild west to do this. On the other hand, on the plus side, if you have a voice and you work hard at it, you will find some place on the internet you can get your work out there. And then there's a chance for you to move. But I think it's just a lot more of a scramble. And I think the public is in some ways less served because those communities, those individual communities are not getting some of those stories. They tend to be very New York, DC, LA. And like, whereas Columbus would have, I mean, in fact, I remember some of the great Columbus narrative projects, the dispatch narrative projects, they were really devoted to some of that stuff. And I haven't gone to look at it lately, but my guess is it's not happening like it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I think that's a real loss for holding local communities accountable, like power holders there, for telling local stories and for training up the next generation of narrative journalists. So I think we've really lost something on that end. Yeah, definitely. Do you ever hear from young reporters who, who want to, to do narrative? Uh, and if so, what do you tell them? Um, I do kind of in fits and spurts. There's the not helpful way of approaching me, which is, hey, I really thought I'd take up what you do. And, you know, like, can you give it to me? Like, I can schedule some time with you. And in 20 minutes, you can tell me how to, you know. And it's like, please don't do that to people. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's really unhelpful. Um, but there was Eva Holland, who's a wonderful uh, narrative journalist up in Canada. Um, and, a like guest, on, and a guest on the podcast twice now. So. Oh, awesome. Well, she's ahead of me. I'll have to catch up to Eva. Right. Uh, she wrote a great book called Nerve, but before mm -hmm. that, she has done a lot of narrative journalism features for Outside and for other places. And she at one point volunteered on Twitter to help like rising journalists if they wanted help with whether it's a pitch letter or working on a story or whatever. And so many people responded to her that like there was no way she could have done it all. And so I wrote to her and I said, if you want to give me your overflow, like I'll take 10 people. So I try to kind of put boundaries around it sometimes because otherwise, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't have number one bestsellers. I don't, I don't have an infinite amount of like money to back me up, to give time for other things, but I want to help. And so in fits and spurts, I'll do bunches of people like that where I try to help them. And I think it's, it's amazing. Some of those people that this was a couple years ago now, and some of those people now have like full-time jobs. I mean, they just like were pitching machines. There was one guy that like just had like six pitches out all the time. I was like, I don't know how you do. I said to him, I don't know how you do that, but I can help you make those pitches better. But just the energy of people. And one thing that's like for better or worse in this business is if you really hustle and you have good ideas, like there's no reason that for books three to five years from now, Somebody couldn't be outselling me, you know, and get a contract and outsell me or somebody writing features for magazines. There's no reason that if, if somebody is willing to do the work and they have some skill they've already worked on for basic writing skill and they work really hard, there's no reason that, that somebody wouldn't be able to do that. I think the problem is the system makes it really hard. So a few people will be able to do that, but we don't have that whole group we had. But I was astounded at some of these young people that I just said, like, it, rejection, first of all, like it's almost never about you. Um, and uh, just assume that that's like part of, oh good, I got rejection. Like I'm already part way through this because as soon as you start taking it personally, it just will eat you up. But in reality, 
I mean, my first book was rejected, I think, by 12 publishers before we got a bite on it. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. And I remember even Gates Talese was talking about pitching. I don't even remember what it was now, but two or three years ago, some story. And he couldn't get anybody to take it for the longest time. And I was like, Gay Talese can't get, I mean, you can like Gay Talese or not, but he has a track record. In my head, Gay Talese was not having trouble placing a feature. And so that was just like, you know, when I read that, I just passed it along to a lot of people to just say, you just have to keep going. And if there's a passion project that you have and you just get stuck and you cannot get anybody to take it, you just set it aside. Do not give up on it. There's a reason it's speaking to you, but you need to not think of it as your soulmate. It can like go to the side for a little bit, work on something else, and then it may come to you that there's another way to approach it. And more than once I have found that ideas that I just thought I couldn't move forward, I came back to later and did something even better. So I would just say like perseverance is the biggest thing. Read it out loud, which you'll also hear from a lot of people. And um, if you're trying to do something ambitious, you'll hear mixed recommendations from people. Like, don't try to break the rules until you know the rules. And I just don't like having a lot of rules. So I, I would say, don't worry so much about that. But if you are trying to do something really unusual, do not give it to an editor until you have it close enough to what you're trying to do that they'll know what you're doing. Because if you give an editor something, they can't tell what it is, they're going to make it into the story they know how to edit. And so I'm all for really wild experimentation and trying big, ambitious things but you cannot give it to somebody without getting it close enough to that mark that they know what they're looking at. And so that's the other big thing I would say is go for it, but like don't bring somebody in on day two if, if you haven't got it there yet. Yeah. Well, that's what Kim Cross did with her bicycling, her Noel and Leon story, uh, which she wrote in the form of a palindrome. She wrote the experimental one, but also she wrote a traditional one and she sent them both to the editor and said, pick which one you want. And they took the, 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 the super, super, super creative one. Well, and I think that, that that's a great way to do it because then they can see, oh, here's the form I know, and then here's what she's trying to do. And that way, even if the, the palindrome may not have been in great shape or like perfect shape at that point, the editor can see the difference between the two and what she's consciously sort of moving toward. Because I have found that, um, I know this isn't true for a lot of Daily Beat journalists, you know, on deadline, but if you're working in a feature format, I mean, editors want something that's interesting. They want something that will surprise people. Like most editors are open to pretty innovative thinking, but you just can't do it half-assed. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I actually, uh, I saw your piece on running for outside magazine back in 2019. And I don't know if you, uh, you know this from some of my tweets, if you see them on, on Twitter, but I love running and I, I post myself runs running selfies all the time. I mean, I love to read about running, especially from people who are very much non-elite runners, right? I mean, so much of running writing or writing about running is is all coming from the super elite people who run, you know, five-minute miles. Um, what what made you want to, to write that piece for outside? I think for me, it was that that most of the runners in the country aren't this elite. You know, they really aren't. And I was a geeky kid. I had a really troubled childhood, very violent, and um, I really felt completely physically powerless because I was beaten with a belt and my hair would be ripped out and things. And I just really didn't feel like I had any control over my body. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s, really, that I started doing physical activity. And weirdly enough, 
I did become a karate instructor. I became, you know, I probably one of the strongest women you will ever talk to even now. Um, but uh, I think that's very different than you can be really dedicated to something. It can be really meaningful to you. You can even have really good physical skills in karate and still be lousy at something else. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I think so much of our adult lives are focused on becoming narrower and narrower and narrower, only doing the things we already know how to do, or only doing the things we think we're really good at. And I find that for me, I am not a natural runner. I mean, I could bicycle forever, um, but I am not a natural runner. But it's actually fantastic for me, which I mentioned in the essay, because in 30 minutes, that's a great workout. I cannot go out on a bike in 30 minutes and get a good workout. It just is not like painful and hard enough to really challenge me on a cardio basis. Boxing I can do. I can do 30 minutes of boxing and get a work. But you need a partner for that. Or you need to have a heavy bag hanging in your house. Or you need there not to be coronavirus so you can do it at the gym. But, um, but in general, uh, running is, I mean, I can be on book tour. I can even, well, in the Arctic, it's hard to really go jogging <laughs> when there's snow and ice. But, um, and there's polar bears. Yeah. But outside of the Arctic, uh, you know, you can run just about anywhere. And so having this thing that is super efficient, that trains my heart, trains my lungs, like I'm not good at it, but I still get, I get what you get out of it. I might get more than you get out of it because it's harder for me. And I think that's actually like, it's good to do things in life that are challenging to you. I, I don't think I'm not one of these masochists. that's like, if it, you know, it has to be painful or I won't learn from it, but it has to be challenging. I think everybody should have something challenging in their life. That's useful or fun that you're not doing it because you're already really good at it. Yeah. Well, are you working on anything now beyond book promotion? Um, well, I'm like, I actually, I should talk about this because book promotion is like a huge, important piece of doing this kind of work for a living and getting to tell these kinds of stories for a living. And so what I didn't do a, a stellar job, I tried, but it was a little harder sell. Um, but also I just didn't focus on it as much from the last book as I did this book was really pitching uh, affiliated essays and pieces. And um, so i am got a piece out next week in the Washington Post. New York uh, Review of Books just did an adapted excerpt that I like revised the opening and changed you know, a little bit to make it kind of a standalone essay. Um, I'm doing a reported thing for the Times. Um, and uh, so book promotion actually is a lot of storytelling and writing. And, and, and it's exciting to get to tell other pieces of the story that maybe are adjacent to the book or not in the book. And that's a little how I've tried to think of this whole book project is I'm trying to be really ambitious. I found with the camps book that people weren't necessarily ready to um, engage with the material, all this history of concentration camps. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how do you tell a story that hopefully you're doing that's artful, that's meaningful, that will relate in some way in the world right now and make people think about it or understand something new. And um, with this book, I almost see the book as just like one piece of it. So the time teacher I'm doing is actually related to somebody I traveled on one of the expeditions with. And I'm going to go back in August of this year. I've been studying Russian for the last year um, and I'm keeping studying it now. I've started uh, dry suit diving, which is cold water diving. Uh, and I'm going back with this crew, this time as a sailor. And so I'm thinking of like this 400 year old story. And then also, which there's a little of at the end of the book, climate change and like where we're at now. 
and I'm thinking of multiple books and multiple stories as kind of a whole constellation of story. And how do you bring readers along with you when you have a really big story to tell in a way that doesn't frighten them? Um, maybe it unnerves them, but they can come back to it again. And I think sometimes it's having several stories with some repeating characters and tackling the biggest thing by looking to the future and also looking to the past. So I'm doing all of that. <laughs> you sound very busy. <laughs> I hope. Well, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World, it goes on sale today, uh, January 12th. Andrea, it has been so great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for doing this podcast and having me on as well. I was talking with Andrea Pitzer. Pitzer is the author of Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. The book was published by Scribner and went on sale today, January 12th. As usual, I've linked to all of the stories that we talk about on the show. You can find all of that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast. Com. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism and sports media programs, both housed in the College of Arts and Sciences. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.